Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here with you today. I, was, I had the week off last week. We had uh, a, a little family gathering up in Carlsbad, and we had uh, a great time. But it's good to be back with you. I wanted to just underscore a couple of things that were said. Bill was talking about the uh, the search team. I was watching online last week um, because I was up there, and and uh, I had a friend of mine, a couple friends of mine, who were at the service last week inside. Uh, they're, they're pastors that I coach. And we've told you before that at some point in the, in the process here, we're going to invite a, a, a leading candidate to come and visit with us. And it's going to be kind of a secret stealth kind of visit. And my friends, they texted me and said, wait, we're here today. And I said, man, I'm not there. But then the next thought was, everyone's going to think these guys are candidates if they introduce themselves to them, you know. But uh, I don't know that any of you you did. They, As far as I know, they've not applied. Those weren't uh, the candidates last week. They're just good friends of mine that, that happened to be in, in San Diego. I also wanted to just uh, underscore how excited we are about going downstairs again and uh, and being inside. And that's also going to um, give us more opportunities for service on Sunday mornings. And if you're able to, to come a little bit early or stay a little bit late and help out in different ways than we've needed over the course of the last year or so as we've been meeting outside, speak to AJ about uh, just volunteering for setup kinds of things, and if you're uh, if you're interested in helping out with the children's program, that's another uh, thing we've been ramping that up for the last month. And if you're interested in helping, we're just a short way from that becoming just something that volunteers would have to work out once a month. You know, so if we just get enough people uh, to help out, uh, the work gets spread out. Uh, really well. I also wanted to say lastly that um, going back inside in two weeks is a great opportunity for you to think about people that you haven't seen who are part of the the church family here at Harbor City, but you haven't seen in a while. Maybe they haven't been able to come or haven't uh, been uh, joining us in the outdoor service here. Uh, If you think of someone like that, give them a call and say, hey, we're in case you haven't heard, we're going back inside in two weeks. It's just kind of a very natural way to uh, connect with someone and give them a little update and encourage them uh, to join us again. We're doing that as staff, and we're we're going to uh, look forward to what the Lord's going to do as we move back inside. Well, this morning, I'm going to uh, speak to you from a very uh, familiar text. It's going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want to read that text as we begin this morning. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 
But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, though, I put away the ways of, uh, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. May God bless his word to us as we ponder these words this morning. If you were here last week and and heard the announcement that Bill gave you, maybe thinking this morning, did did Dan and Marion move up their wedding date to this Sunday morning? And are we having a wedding here? You know, it's like when you go to a, a fight and a hockey game breaks out, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, are, are we coming to worship and we're going to get a wedding here? Because I would imagine that probably 90, 90% of the times you've heard that text read, it's been at a wedding, hasn't it? I mean, that's typically where we hear this text. It's kind of a standalone uh, text. We read it. We don't really take consideration of what the context is for 1 Corinthians 13. It's very well known. We, we read it, we listen to it, and we try to become inspired by it. However, what I want you to see this morning is that it's probably, even though it's, a, it's very famous and beloved, it's probably one of the most misunderstood passages that, that we read and that we know in God's Word. Uh, I want you to see that before we're through here today. When we read this, especially or when we hear it, like at a wedding, uh, typically we're just like, oh, that's so great. That's so, you know, it's just like it's so soothing. It, it, uh, we we kind of swoon when we hear it. If Paul were at a wedding and he heard someone read these words that he wrote, he'd be scratching his head saying, why would they ever think of reading that chapter at a wedding. That's how Paul would think of it. Because what Paul intended 1 Corinthians 13 to be was not some inspirational passage about love. He intended it primarily to be a rebuke to the people of Corinth to whom he was writing. It was a rebuke. And and you're going to see that as we go on. One of the uh, memories I have of one of the good memories I have of of, uh, weddings that I've performed over the years. I don't know how many dozens of weddings I've done in in my ministerial career, but it was weddings I got to do for friends that I played baseball with. Uh, I, I kind of took up adult baseball when I was in my early 40s and played for about uh, up until a couple of years ago for about 20 years. And during that time, uh, I became kind of the de facto chaplain of my team when they found out what I did. And I think I, I performed maybe three or four weddings initially. And then the next phase was marriage counseling, you know, when after the weddings, you get into the counseling. And lately, it's been funeral, sadly. But, you know, it's just kind of the life cycle that my relationship with my baseball buddies has gone through. Uh, there was a time, though, about probably about 20 years ago that um, one of the guys I was best friends with was actually an umpire in our league. And he said, Doug, I've got a I've got a real good friend that's getting married. Can you do the wedding? And this fellow was a, a fellow who actually managed a semi-pro team. And, and his wife came from a family where all of her brothers played baseball. 
And so there was this big baseball theme to the, to the wedding, and I could go on and on about, about that. We actually had a home plate in front of me between me and the bride and the groom as I gave the, uh, as I gave the service there that day. It was, it was really kind of funny. But as uh, it was over in Escondido, and as I was driving over the night before for the rehearsal, I, started, I was thinking through what I was going to say for the homily at the wedding. And I had already met with Mike and Cindy. That, that, that was their names. And, and uh, their story was, was kind of unique. They'd been an item for quite a while, but uh, they were, I think, probably in their late 30s or early 40s. And Cindy told me that she had been a bridesmaid like 12 to 15 times. I mean, she was just tired of being a bridesmaid, never a bride. And, and so with that as background, I was thinking, well, how can I weave baseball and, and all this kind of stuff into, uh, into a wedding ceremony and, and this idea of, of uh, her being a bridesmaid for so long? And I thought, well, love is patient. You know, I thought, well, I can, I can work with that. And I, a whole way over, I'm thinking about how this is all coming together. I'm pretty pleased with it. I get to the rehearsal and I, I greet Mike and Cindy and she says, how are things going? I go, great, we're, we're all set. Everything's going well. She goes, well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you say uh, tomorrow to us. But one thing I want to tell you is don't tell me tomorrow that love is patient. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And she goes, I am not a patient person. And, and right away, I just kind of laughed inside, and I thought, okay, back to the drawing board here. We'll have to figure out what to say. And the wedding went off fine, and we had, we had a good time. But she was so convinced that she'd heard that so many times. It was probably the one passage of Scripture she'd, she'd heard every time she was a bridemaid, love is patient, love is patient. She goes, don't tell me that love is patient. You know, my goal today as I go through this passage with you is to help you kind of see it like Cindy saw it back then. And so first, what I want to do is like totally ruin the passage for you, okay? I don't want you ever to read it the way that we typically read it again. But then I want to make it one of your most precious passages uh, that, that you see because of what it really is pointing us to in this particular passage. This was written to the people in Corinth. It was a city that Paul had started a church through to sharing the gospel with people. But the city of Corinth was rather unique. It's in, this, it's in the nation of Greece. And if you look on a map, it's the same place today as it was back then. It's at a point uh, of Greece where the land comes together into an isthmus that's about four miles wide from from one sea to the to the uh, to the bay that's on the other side, and then the land opens up again as you go further south. And so there's a major road that goes right through the isthmus there, and and boats that would come in when they were um, now there's actually a canal from one side to the net to the other. I don't think there was back then, but they would ships would come in on one side, they transport goods to the other, and they they would take off, uh, and that's. What, what happened. So it was a, really a crossroads city. And if you think of crossroads city, one of, one of the things that you realize is crossroads cities usually attract uh, people that really want to make a name for themselves in life. And in some ways, crossroads cities 
attract the best and the brightest of people who, who want to um, capitalize on the opportunities that you find in those kinds of cities. And so it's no wonder that when we look at the books of First and Second Corinthians and the issues that are going on, Paul's addressing people who are, seem to be very talented, seem to be very ambitious about their Christianity, uh, seem to be very ambitious about life, but it's a mess because in the midst of all that ambition that they have, they don't love each other. There's immorality going on. There's divisions going on. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. Uh, and then another group that would just says, well, I'm just of Christ. And, and it was kind of a na 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 kind of thing, you know. And, and so there was just all this stuff going on, division, immorality, uh, they would get together for what, it, what was the equivalent of a potluck meal, and they'd be elbowing each other in line trying to get to the food first, and they would go and eat without uh, the other person. So it was really a mess. And if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses each of these issues as they go. They were coveting certain gifts and said, well, this, my, my abilities are more important than your abilities uh, that, that I have. And in the midst of all that, Paul just says, listen, Listen, there's something far more important than all these things that you think are important. And he lays out this text in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And really the goal uh, that he has for us all in 1 Corinthians 13, we find down in verse 12 where he says, there's going to come a time when all these things that we're so ambitious about aren't going to mean anything. And we're going to see face to face. We're going to come into encounter with God face to face, and we're going to know even as we are fully known. It's that, that beatific vision that theologians talk about. Uh, that's the goal that Paul says, I have in mind for you, for you folks in Corinth. That's the goal that he has in mind for us. But he says, there's something you need to do first in order to achieve that goal. You need to pass the test, is what he's saying. You need to pass the test. And so he tells us four things. He tells the Corinthians and us four things about this test that they need to pass. The first thing that he tells them in verses one through three is, brothers and sisters, you're taking the wrong test. That's the first thing he says to them. Uh, there, was a, there was a famous athlete in his circles by the name of Matt Emons. He competed in four straight Olympic Olympic. Uh, uh, years 2004, 8, 12, and 16, uh, and the rifle competition. And he was just at the top of the, the heap in terms of his skill. And in 2004, he actually uh, competed both in a singular event and then, in, and then in, the, in the three position event. So the singular event that he won was the prone position, he won the gold medal. But it went on later in the week that he was in the, the three position competition where you shoot a 30 or shot standing up, you, you shoot a 30 or shots kneeling on one knee, and you shoot the last third of your shots from the prone position. He was so far out ahead of everyone, by the time he came to his last shot in this three-position uh, competition, that the score he needed was an 8.1, which, just to put it in context, that would have been a very amateurish score. Anyone who had one of these rifles could get an 8.1. It was not, uh, he was like three points out ahead of everyone else. He just had to take his last shot and he'd get his second gold medal in the three position competition. He, he went down, took the shot, looked through his viewfinder, saw that he hit the bullseye, thought, I've got the gold. Put his gun down, 
And then there, but there was a flurry of activity going on down where the targets were. And he waited for his score to be posted and, and for him to be, you know, declared the champion and get the gold medal. But when his score was posted, it wasn't like a nine or a 10, it was a zero. And it dropped him from first place all the way down to eighth place, which sent him out of the whole medal competition at that point. Here's what had happened. Standing in lane two, he shot a bullseye into the target of lane three. He crossed, it's called a crossfire. He crossfired his last shot at the Olympics. He was perfect, but it was the wrong target. And it turned into a big zero. It's a very similar thing that Paul's saying here to the Corinthians in these first three verses. He says, you're, you're shooting at the wrong target here. You're taking the wrong test. He's saying, first of all, that spectacular gifts, speaking in tongues and so forth, they don't impress God. You're like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if you don't have love. He says, secondly, great leadership qualities don't impress God either. He says, you can, you can fathom all mysteries. You can have the gift of prophecy. You can have faith that moves mountains. Those are kind of things that leaders do in, in the church. And he says, you can be really good at all that stuff, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. And then he, and then he says, thirdly, he says, uh, tremendous sacrifices don't even impress God. You can give your body over to hardship, it says in this version. In some versions, it'll say you could give your body over to the flames. You could become a martyr for the Lord. But if you're not doing it out of love, he says, you gain nothing. And so Paul addresses kind of all of our idols here. We, we think in terms of how we impress God, we impress God by the gifts we bring to the table, by what we know. We, impress, we can maybe, you know, gain some points with God or maybe the sacrifices that we make. And Paul says none of those things are going to matter if they're offered apart from love. And here's the thing, friends. These things that he mentions the gifts, the, the leadership qualities, the tremendous sacrifices, that's everything that the Corinthians were in, the, in their city. Check out the letter. Everything that he mentions there are things that they're trying to achieve. And Paul says, you can achieve all that, but if you don't have love, it's not going to get you anywhere. You're cross-firing. You're in lane two, and you're shooting at the bullseye in lane three. You may hit it, but it doesn't matter. You've got a big fat zero on the test. You're not going to get to that vision of God. And so he's underscoring the fact that it's very possible for us to do a lot of things that look impressive on the outside, but as far as God's concerned, they don't get us any standing with him whatsoever unless they're motivated and done from the perspective of love. It's so easy to mistake talent and accomplishments uh, for character. It was easy for the Corinthians. It's easy for us too. He's telling them you're taking the wrong test. Here's the second thing he tells them in verses four through seven. He tells them you can't pass the right test, okay? You can't pass the right test. It's as if this target that you're aiming at is a mile away and your rifle is, is um, calibrated for like 50 meters. You're not, you won't have a chance of hitting the target if that's the case. You can't pass the right test. Now, 
if you're like me, uh, when you see a list like this, it begins at verse four, where it says, love is patient, kind, does not envy, and goes on and on and on. And you think, okay, what's a good way to apply this to my life? A lot of times what we'll do, and other people will tell us this, they'll say, just look at each one of those things, try to figure out what Paul is saying there, explain it in other words, uh, get inspired about it, then grade yourself on how well you're doing in that area. You know, one of these things you might be doing really well, you know, you might be getting an A in that area. And this other one, you know, anger, maybe, maybe that's like a C. Maybe uh, forgiveness is a B. Whatever it might be, we kind of grade ourselves and then we say, let's go to work on these things that we're not as good at and we'll, and we'll, we'll improve in them and that'll be pleasing to the Lord. And, and here's the problem with that, friends. It is a test, but the grading system is not A, B, C, D, F. The grading system that Paul lays out here, that God lays out, actually, it's pass-fail. It's not, it's not A, B, C, D, F. It's pass-fail. And you think, okay, well, you know, when I did pass-fail tests, that took a lot of pressure off, it seemed like. But here's, here's the kicker. Passing grade on these is 100%. It's not like most of the time. It's not like 80%. It's not like 92%. It's 100%, 100% of the time. And just to make that clear, when he gets to the end, he uses the words always. He says it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And then just to wrap it up, he says love never fails. Love never fails. Now, if you've ever gone to a, like if you're a married couple and you've gone to counseling and you start, you know, your counselor says, what's going on? Well, he always does this. She always does that. He never does this. She never does that. And they'll say, time out. Stop using always. Stop using never. Those are not good words to use to communicate to each other because you're never always, you're never, never, uh, you know, you got to think of a better way to communicate. But Paul says, no, here's the test. You always protects. You always trust, always hopes, always persevere. You never fail. And so verses one through three is everything that they were in Corinth. Verses four through seven is really everything that they were not. They weren't patient with one another. They dishonored each other. They were self-seeking. Uh, they were easily angered with one another. They kept records of wrong. You see the rebuke that's coming through here? Paul's saying everything that you think is the test is not the test. And what the test really is, you're failing really miserably at this because that's uh, just where you are. Uh, you're not passing the test the way that you need to. And the bottom line is that my friend Cindy was right. I am not a patient person. She knew more about that text than I did because I was going to try to inspire her with this phrase, love is patient. And she's saying, no, I, that's not me. I'm not a patient person. It's, uh, I, I was talking to Adrian today. I need to get some of his gear. We're all ugly. We all ugly, right? Not we're. We all ugly. <laughs> That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying. We all ugly. We all ugly. We don't measure up. When we find out what the test is really all about, if we're honest with ourselves and we're fully known, it isn't pretty at that point. We need to be loving, but we don't have it in us to be loving the way that we need to. So where do we turn and where's our hope as we, as we uh, continue on? Third thing that, that Paul says about this test that, that begins to give us hope is this. He says, 
there is one who passed the test. There is one who passed the test. He took the right test and he passed it. When Paul talks about love here, it's almost as if he's personifying it. Uh, and, And he does so in such a way that we realize that love is not simply a set of guidelines that we breathe life into in order to make it work and to achieve it in our own lives. But really, um, love is talking about somebody else other than us. It's talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you go through 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and wherever it says love, put the name Jesus in there, it reads quite differently, doesn't it? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. He passed the test, and he lived that perfect life of love. And if that's if we only had three points this morning, that's really not that much more encouraging, is it? If we just say we're usually taking the wrong test, we can't pass the right test. Someone did pass the test. If we leave it at that, we're still hopelessly trying to achieve something we can't achieve. But the last point this morning is this, that he passed that test for us. He passed that test for us. Uh, When you look at 1 Corinthians 13, some people have looked at this and said, well, we really don't see much of Jesus in here. We don't see the cross. And and you look at this and you go, what do you mean you don't see Jesus? You don't see the the cross, Uh, the patience that he showed. uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrongs, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Not giving up because he said, Lord, not my will, Father, but, but your will be done. All these things that Paul says, personify love is what Jesus expressed when he went to the cross. But there's an even greater way that it reflects Jesus. When we get down to verse 12, and he says, the goal here is that we shall see face to face. Uh, we, will be, we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And we realize, as that refers to Jesus, he left the face of his father, didn't he? He had that that face throughout all eternity past. And when they thought up the plan of salvation, the father says, you're going to have to leave the glory of heaven to go down to earth to live and pass the test for these people. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And even down on earth, he sought the face of the father over and over again. We we read about Jesus rising early, praying to the Father, asking the Father for help at every step of the way. The Father was always there. But when it came down to the end, I'm watching the trash truck go over back there. You're hearing it. When it came down to the end, in his, in his time of greatest need on the cross, he looked to the Father, and the Father had, as it were, turned his back on him. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me, he said. He was forsaken because at that moment and for that time, he bore the weight of your sin and my sin on his shoulders. And he bore the penalty of that. And the penalty of sin is that you lose the face of God. That's what hell is all about. God's not there. You lose the face of God. 
And so Jesus suffered in our place so that we could receive the blessing of the face of God. There will come a day when we will be, we will, we will know and we will understand that we know even as we are fully known. Knowing and being fully known, that's a, and, and, and how love fits into that is a very complicated thing because I think we all struggle with this. We think, well, if someone says they love me, they probably do so just because they don't really know me. If they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. But the gospel is his friends, that God fully knows you. And in Christ, he fully loves you. Fully known and fully loved. And that's where we end in verse, verse 12. I remember a time in high school when <clears throat> I was taking a class and uh, the professor was giving us a test, the teacher was, and, um, and it happened to be a 20-question true-false test that we had in this class. And as I, uh, as I approached, as the papers were passed out and the test was given, I did what I usually do on true-false tests. I went down as quickly as I could and just nailed all the ones I knew for sure. You know, and then I'm going to go back and look at the ones that, that are, are causing me to scratch my head a little bit, and I'll think about those a little bit more. I went through uh, the first round, and I answered 15 of the 20 questions. I'm thinking, okay, that's pretty good. But if I blow the last five, that's a C on the test. That's a 75%. That's not going to work. So I went back to these other five, and when I went back to the other five, the one thing I noticed that was kind of odd was that all 15 of my other answers were true. And I thought, there's got to be some falses in here somewhere. And I started looking at these, these questions, and I looked at a couple of them. I said, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. And, and after about the second one, something popped into my mind. Here's what popped into my mind. It was something that had happened the year before, because uh, at, at dinner time at my house, I had an older brother who was one year ahead of me at this school and had taken this very course. And he was telling us over dinner one time a year ago, a year preceding this, we had this test the other day. It was a 20-question true-false test, and every one of those answers was true. He was trying to trick us, you know. And I, and I realized when, when I remembered that, I, I said, this is the test. This is the test. And as soon as I, I, I realized that, I put T, 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 and walked up, handed my paper in, and left. And everyone's, everyone's coming out of the class after me, and they're going, man, it seemed like most of those were true, but some of them had to be false. I go, no, they're all true. They're all true, you know. And, and sure enough, I aced that test, friends. I aced that test. But why did I ace the test? Did I ace it because of what I had done? No, I aced it because I had an older brother that had already taken the test. And that's what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 13. We have that older brother who's already taken the test, and he's taken the test for us. Friends, don't take the wrong test. Don't think, don't begin to think that you can pass on your own the right test. Look to the one who has lived, uh, he's lived out love, and he himself said, greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friend. Because if you approach this passage for inspiration and you're honest with yourself, you will become depressed. And if you approach this text and, and think that it's the standard to be achieved, it's going to destroy you if you're honest. 
But if you approach this text and you're able to see and embrace Christ in this passage, he'll not only save you, but he'll also encourage you and empower you to love others the way that he has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in sending your son, you sent us love personified. Jesus, we thank you that you were the always and the never. And that because of you, we can always hope and always persevere. And because of you, we won't fail because you've taken the test for us. Father, deepen our love for you and the gospel through this so that we see you providing all we need so that we can go out and be your people who demonstrate to the world that kind of love out of hearts that are overflowing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.